Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this week my podcast takes me to the northeast of England. I received a direct message on Twitter from a woman called Kate, who seemed to think that we knew each other, which it turned out we did a little bit, online. And she said this, Dear Julie, I wanted to share something with you as a small counterpoint to the abuse you receive for your fantastic work for women. My beloved partner and I are celebrating 34 years together. Four years ago, she was diagnosed with a blood cancer. We were told it was incurable but treatable. It's resisted all treatments and she now has a terminal diagnosis. She's on treatment designed to give us more time, which has worked better than expected and she's currently stable. The effects of four years on chemo are wide-ranging, not least on memory and cognitive function and I strive to keep her engaged with the world. We would both like to be in the front line in this current madness, but are forced by circumstances to become keyboard warriors, although there are a number of us campaigning as a group on Twitter, and we meet up in real life when possible. One of the ways I help Annie stay engaged is by reading the writings of the fantastic women at the vanguard of this movement. I read her your regular columns on feminism, It's difficult to convey just how much the words you and the wonderful women alongside you mean to us. We feel like we're part of the biggest fight of our lives, both in the gender woo-woo sense and Annie's cancer. And instead of feeling isolated, we have brilliant support and it's women who are doing it. Suddenly, what we have in common as women goes beyond sexuality. It's our sex and it's under attack. I have some idea of how much abuse you get. This is to say thank you for not being cowed by cowards. Thank you for your courage, your honesty and your energy. You are making a huge difference to so many people, not least a pair of unrepentant old dykes in coastal Northumberland. Well, of course, after such a wonderful, heartwarming, moving message, I replied. It turns out that Kate and I had a massive online falling out over Corbyn. For the avoidance of doubt, I loathe him, and Kate used to think he might be a good thing for the Labour Party. We got chatting. Kate and Annie live in Newbigging-by-the-Sea, about 30 miles from Sunderland. I'm from the North East, and I'm always happy to reconnect to that area of the world. I asked would they fancy a visit, and before I knew it, I'd booked the train tickets. Then I got Covid. I rearranged. Then the July heatwave hit and my train was cancelled. I rearranged. There I was, finally on the train. No cancellations. Then came the announcement. Damage to overhead cables. I finally arrived at Newcastle Station, 30 minutes after my return train would have left to go back to London. I was just doing a day trip. But I just couldn't go through disappointing all of us again for a third time. So I stayed overnight in Newcastle in the hottest hotel in the world. And the following morning, Kate picked me up at the station and drove me to their gorgeous cottage where we shared lesbian and feminist gossip. It felt like we'd known each other forever. And we got on famously. It's that connection with the North East 
with feminism, with lesbianism, and the misogynistic backlash that we all, all agreed we are enduring right now. And we began our discussions with memories of coming out back in the day. I've just turned 60, Annie is 69, and Kate 71. So not much difference in age. However, a decade makes a huge difference in the way that lesbian liberation came about. It was bad enough for me coming out as a 15-year-old girl in 1977 in Darlington. But for these two women, things were even harder. Kate tells this story about when, as a 15-year-old in the 1960s, she met this girl, Norma. They wrote passionate letters to each other, entirely appropriate to their ages. Then one day, a letter arrived for Kate. But it was from Norma's mother. So Kate's mother opened it. Kate was out at school. Because she sensed something was wrong. All hell broke loose. The letter was awful. But all these decades later, the phrase that sticks in Kate's mind is... Stop sending your idiotic, love-sick letters to my daughter, or there will be big trouble. Kate was devastated, and it put her mother on high alert about Kate's sexuality. She subsequently encouraged Kate to have boyfriends, any boyfriend, anyone who was around, who was available and vaguely suitable. Kate was married at 18 to a local boy, had a baby at 19... And by the time she was 21, she was living with a woman that she had met through the small ads in Melody Maker. Here's our conversation between me, Kate and Annie. I was married at 18. 18? Mm. To a local boy? Yeah. Yeah, he was actually a friend of my eldest brother. And he was a nice enough guy, you know, we got on all right. Um, um, we both played the guitar, you know, important mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, before I knew it, I mean, I was married at 18, I had Susie at 19. And by the time I was 21, I was living with a woman in Litchfield. Fast worker. So... That whole thing about the letters mm. that your mum found, mm. that really resonates because when... So I'm 60, so we're, there's an 11-year age gap between mm. us. So not huge in terms of the cultural context. Yeah. And as you know, I was raised in the northeast, and yeah. I had written a letter to... Through gay news that I found in the newsagents in Darlington, mm. or probably in Newcastle at the station more likely, just looking for a friend, yeah. looking for, I wasn't looking for a relationship or sex or any of that hookup stuff that now is so prevalent, mm. but I just wanted to meet other lesbians, mm. and my mum found that letter, the, the letter that I um, hadn't yet posted, and she said, I don't know what this is about, but when there's something wrong with my kids, I always have a very bad feeling in my stomach and I don't have that bad feeling. So I don't think it's what I think it is. And I said, the reason why you don't have that bad feeling is because there is nothing wrong mm. with me. And I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. Yeah. 
it's tricky stuff, isn't it? Because people don't understand how stigmatised it was mm. to be a lesbian. Much harder than it was for gay men, I oh, think. Way harder. Why, why would you say... I mean, what about you, Annie? Do you, would, would you concur with that? Do you think that it, in the times that we all came out or around the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was always harder for women? Well, yes, because we were so invisible, really. Because um, I was, I was beginning to, you know, I was becoming aware of the direction that, that my feelings were going in. I mean, I just remember not being able to babysit for our neighbours when I was oh, 13, God. 14 years old. Oh. So that was in the early 70s, because they just assumed, they really did assume we were child abusers. Okay. I mean, gay men say that that was a label put on them, but we were assumed yeah, as, yeah. as lesbians, even as kids. Mothers were yeah. threatened with having our children taken away, and many women did have their children taken yeah. away yeah. in the 70s yeah. because of being unfit mothers. And, and in the 80s, my, yeah. my friend Denise yeah, Marshall. It started in the 70s. It absolutely yeah. did. You're, you're right with the family courts and the, the men's rights movement, and yeah. when women did start to leave men and have relationships mm. with women. Mm. That was a, one of the spiteful ways in which they could yeah. retaliate. But my friend Denise, who would be much... She, she died seven years ago, but she, she was my age. She had her son taken off her. Mm. Yes, we've got, we have a friend who had her children taken away. What happened? They, I mean, they, re, they reconciled as the children were older. Um, she, was, she just felt completely powerless. He was very wealthy and... You know, well connected and all that. So she didn't have a cat and hell's chance. I mean, do you think? So you two have been together for thirty three years. Thirty four. Thirty four, which means that I've been with my partner for thirty five. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, we we well we we get we get the anniversary of our first date wrong because it was on the uh, the night of the big storm that Michael Fish mm. so wrongly predicted. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And that was our first date, mm. the first night we spent together. But Harriet will not ever remember whether it was the 15th or the 16th of October. Mm. Right. To the point of where I now am unsure right. which one it was. Right. So... <laughs> well, ours was the 22nd of June, so, 1988. Being together for, for that long, um, we were talking a little bit about this earlier, weren't we, Kate? About how the healthiest relationships can be those where you're very different yeah. people. And it, it, Annie, if you had to say what the biggest difference between you both in terms of character or approach or mood or whatever, would, would something spring to mind? Well, well, I guess really the the the, main, the biggest difference for me is that Kate is so much more sociable than I am, <laughs> and um, <laughs> so uh, I I really do feel, generally speaking, that um, you know I only have friends because <laughs> I'm with Kate <laughs> because she makes the friends and then they they come and meet me as well and. <laughs> And then they learn to love great. you as well. <laughs> and then you secretly learn to love socialising a little yeah. bit. Yes, I Within do. reason. Yes, I, I, I do. I, I manage much better than I used to. 
um, these days. Um, but uh, so she's more sociable. Does she have? Would you say that one of you has a quicker temper or reaction than the other? <laughs> yes, which is part of the same issue that we were just talking about, I think, really, that where you know, Kate bringing friends within my uh, range was, was very nice because I, I can... I, I do have a temper and... Um, I keep it under control most of the time, but when it goes, um, then it tends to be a bit um, <laughs> a bit fiery, I gather, from what people tell me. <laughs> so so you, you've been at the, the receiving end of this, then, Kate? Not a huge amount, to be fair, but it, it's... Um, and I would say that whenever Annie has lost her temper, which happens hardly at all these days um, but over the years has it, it's always been for a very just reason but it's you know she'll she's the most reasonable and calm and can you know discuss and debate and provide evidence for what she's saying and everything else but I think if there's an emotional element attached to it there will come a point where she just poof, explodes. I think probably because I kick off at least six or seven times a day and I wake up angry and go to yeah. bed angry, yeah. I don't really lose my temper. I think I'm the same. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there are many days uh, when Alex will come over and we'll, sit and we'll be ranting for mm. three hours. You know, and Annie's just going, yes, yeah. And Sitting there reasonably. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, and I'll say to her afterwards, oh, you know, we didn't mean to kick off on all of that again. She'll say, no, 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 you know, she's taken it, agrees with it all. You see, th this sounds very familiar to me because Harriet is a reasonable person, mm. so I'm terrified of her temper. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if she loses it, it means it's legitimate. Exactly. It's not pleasant because mm. I know that there's grounding in it, yeah. whereas... I'll be ranting and going on yeah. about something, our, our thing. I'm quite meticulous in the kitchen. My kitchen has to be meticulously tidy. My bedroom's a disgrace. but yeah. And Harriet has this habit of leaving things out. Muesli's on the floor, right? Things are just plonked. Coffee, I'll find her half drunk coffee cup in the microwave that she's then forgotten to like drink and it'll be there for three days. And I go bonkers at that. And then she goes bonkers at me for things like, I'll sit in the dark rather than change a light bulb because I don't know how to do it. <laughs> or or just or forgetting to pay a bill or something. Yeah. But honestly, so I go mad on a daily basis and she kind of ignores it really. And occasionally she'll say, just stop getting at me. I'll say, well, stop dropping muesli on the floor. But that, to be fair, that is the kind of extent of our disagreements. Yeah. Yeah, cheers, cheers with us. The, the, the really important stuff we, we agree on and we're on, this, on the same side. But um, Annie's not a naturally tidy person. And for me, there's particularly um, since uh, Annie was diagnosed, um, which is, you know, four and a half years ago, uh, there's very little in my life I can control. 
So I have to control my immediate environment. That's interesting. You know, that for me is really important. Mm. So, um, uh, and I give, give Annie full credit. She tries really, really hard now because she knows, um, you know, she's living it. She's going through it. But she, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating phenomenon that she could sit there and stuff just appears around her. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. I accept that I can do that. And I'm trying to be better. <laughs> You'll never change, you know that. No. I mean, it's just written into your DNA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Harriet commits this terrible crime of... We've got a dog who's elderly and disabled, so she's got arthritis. Yeah. And she's absolutely the canine love of my life. Mm. She's adorable. And because she can't get up on much furniture, yeah. her favourite sofa is quite a low sofa in Harriet's yeah. study. Yeah. Sometimes Harriet will go in, and because she's a lawyer, she carries loads of case files yeah. around with her, she'll plonk her very big rucksack on the dog's bed. <laughs> and the dog can't get on, and I'll just always be flouncing in and grabbing her rucksack <laughs> and propping it up against the door and saying, don't put that on the dog's bed. And... She doesn't turn a hair. Yeah. I mean, she's such a reasonable, calm yeah. person. Yeah. And sometimes I think, how the hell does she put up yeah. with me? Because you're wonderful. It's that that bit is true. Yes, no. That 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 is true. So obviously, you've been diagnosed with cancer for four and a half years. You've looked after each other through that, but. Lesbians I know in this situation seem to cope with it way, way better than a lot of heterosexual couples that I've seen. And obviously we're women and that makes a difference in terms of the way that we are way more equal without even having yeah. to try that hard. Mm. But but what what to you is, is very kind of special about the way that you take care of each other through this really awful hard time, I'm sure. Um and I'm sure a lot of the time you don't think about it and it doesn't feature in your conversation, but what what do you think matters in your relationship in terms of that, yeah. being able to care for each other? We've talked about this quite a lot because we've met people um, in our various hospital trips where we've seen the effects, we've watched couples... Um, uh, there was one guy that we, we saw was in, you know, we were waiting for treatment with, with, his, with his wife and he was clearly the person who was having the treatment and he was, she was trying to um, get him something to eat and um, he didn't want anything and what's the bloody point, I can't taste it or anything and there was so much anger, which I understand but it was aimed at her. Mm. And, uh, you know, obviously it's it's a difficult thing to suddenly lose your taste, your sense of taste mm. and smell, which, you know, Annie has as well. But we talk about it. She doesn't blame me for that. She knows it's the cancer, or rather it's the treatment, um, that's caused that. And also she's turned it around so that she doesn't concentrate on taste for food anymore. She looks at texture. Mm. 
and stuff like that. So still manages to um, get some enjoyment mm -hmm. out of you know, and that's just a small incident. But for us, because we've always talked about everything, and it it sounds crazy, but when we first got together, because we'd had difficult relationships beforehand, and because of my family history of verbal and physical violence, um, we knew what we wanted. We were both in our mid-30s by this time. We knew what we wanted and we did, knew what we didn't want. And it was like we were writing a contract. Mm. And it was all spoken, usually in cafes, several um, happy eaters on the way somewhere else. That's low. <laughs> we, I know, I know. And once in a, a pizza restaurant in uh, Leicester Square. It's not even Harvester. I mean, that's lower than Harvester, <laughs> it isn't it? Yes. Although they didn't did nice veggie burgers. Um, and we just talked about what we wanted and what we didn't want and what we were offering and, you know, all of that stuff. And we laid it all on the table. And it felt quite scary because we were both completely smitten. But we didn't want, you know how you go through and you you fancy somebody or you get involved with somebody and you ignore the red flags. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I knocked this into Alex and Susie both, you know, don't ignore the red flags because they're so important. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we really worked at it before we started, really, didn't we? Yes, yeah, we, we put... Um... We put the issues out on the table and were and were honest with each other. And um, when I think about it now, bizarrely, it just suddenly flicked through the back of my mind. Then, um, how on earth did I know it was going to work? Uh, how on earth did I know I could trust this? But I just did because, and and I suppose because we ended up having these conversations in such detail. And they felt so honest and straightforward. And I thought, well, it, if this doesn't work, if something emerges now that is, has not been clear about or has not been owned up to or something, then I'll see it and then I'll make a decision about what I do next. But then there was the little voice that said, but I've got a feeling there won't be anything like that. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been. Um, and, and and cancer has marched in and has sort of taken up the, the centre spot and, and demands every now and again, oh, it's all about me, it's all about me. Um, but in fact, we don't spend all our time now either talking about that. And we've got ourselves organised and... Um, we help each other and we do talk such a lot about it and we let the feelings out. We don't pretend that the feelings yeah. aren't there. You know, the, so you don't have to protect the, each the other The terror and the anger, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and I, sometimes I worry that, that friends perhaps don't visit because they're, they, they, don't, they don't want to get em, embroiled in it uh, and I can't say I, I blame them for that. But. Um, you know, we don't sit here doing nothing but discussing cancer mm -hmm. and planning how we're going to manage that afternoon or the next day, whatever. It's not like that. 
and we, we have different uh, support processes and I have people I can talk to that are not my family that I so I don't have to give them everything uh, in the sense that um, you know I, I can I can get my support you know, from other people as well there are different people and and they get support as well that's what's different I think from what I've seen with men in situations where their female partner has been sick or they themselves have been sick and they really don't think about the reality mm. of life in a way that lesbians do I suppose because we've always had to face reality yeah and maybe also because which you've just talked about there Annie that we've got family beyond mm. the kind of very staged traditional mm. nuclear family blood family and it goes it goes beyond that doesn't it and that I think that's what I worry about younger lesbians missing out on mm. that because they don't have a community as we do mm. because of the friendship networks the social yeah. events this I don't normally use this term but a safe space mm. to just be lesbians together. Because yeah. it's hard being out mm. in the wide yeah. world as lesbians. We had all of that. Yeah. Even if it was just the kind of informal room rental above a pub because the landlord was not yeah. busy on a Wednesday night. Yeah. Mm. So that was difficult yeah, we knowing we weren't welcome in the mainstream. Yeah. But actually, having those women-only spaces yeah, for lesbians... Yeah. It did make a huge difference. You know, um, and that just isn't there anymore. We need to rebuild it. We do, Julie, we do. We do. And, and Annie, I mean, you, when you talk about being able to be honest and open and not protect each other, I don't think it's like that with a lot of heterosexual mm. relationships. I think that they're unable to have those conversations. I don't think that they talk in the same way that we do mm. because it's almost like their relationships just happen organically, naturally. Mm. They're together, they're married, therefore they're a couple and what, what, what do you need to talk about? Mm. And I think that we, if our generation and a little bit younger, have all been through that process of taking our relationships seriously and also not just prioritising the couple norm and letting people into your lives that are very close to you, mm. as opposed to just, you know, Derek and yeah. Angela that you go out with on a Sunday night, yeah. mm. where they're kind of, they're not that close, and they're, they're not like family friendships. Yeah. I think, you know, and this was one of the things that I think friends found, found puzzling about us moving up here um, to this... Um, uh, ex-fishing village in Northumberland and um, you know where are, where are you going to find the lesbians you know <laughs> you always find the lesbians always <laughs> find the lesbians lesbians are everywhere um, and I think the decision that we made was that we were going to we were going to come to this place and um uh, we were just going to be ourselves 
and we weren't going to pretend to be anything else and people could either like us or leave us alone you know mm. we, we're too old and um been at it too long to to worry too much about that stuff and i can honestly say there were two incidents and one was when we'd been out somewhere uh and it was quite a late do and when we got back here it was well past midnight remember those days we used to go out <laughs> all the time and um we just parked the car and we're just heading back to the house and these two lads crossed the road in front of us and one of them was very very drunk and uh, <laughs> as he passed us he said lesbians which always makes me laugh so much. how observant of you so we just um i just chuckled and we sort of uh we went into the house and then i could hear running footsteps and i thought aye aye um, and the other one had deposited deposited his mate somewhere and ran back to us and he said, I'm really sorry. He's oh. very drunk. He's not usually like that, you know. And I was oh, how sweet. <laughs> gobsmacked, you know, by that. But I said, it's fine, honestly. Um, he's not usually like that. And off he went. And uh, we'd been warned by our friends to expect kind of being targeted uh, or something and it was a ridiculous thing because Annie's parents were living with us then and her father John who I got on with extremely well I think he saw me as the son-in-law he never had <laughs> and he bit of a gender me. bender aren't you Kate <laughs> he would talk to me about cars and <laughs> and he would want when we used to visit them in Wales he always wanted me and him to sit drinking in the living room while Annie and her mum made the dinner. I think that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> so, um, he anyway, we had a, like a lot of coastal towns and in those um, Victorian Edwardian houses, they had a front garden um, and a yard at the back. And uh, it was a lovely front garden. And he decided the path was a bit dark, so he put some of those solar lights mm -hmm down the pathway so it would be less dangerous than the dog and um, there was a, a gang of youths passing on their way down to the uh, I don't know where they were going anyway and uh, they stood outside our door for our garden for a bit and I was watching them through the window and um, I thought, oh, what's going on here? And they kept pointing at the house and saying things anyway. And I went out of the living room to the hallway and I was going to go to the front door and open the door. And by the time I got to the front door, one of them had nipped over the wall and pinched the lamps from the garden, you see. So I thought, little toe racks and what have you. But I didn't think much of it. And then, again, ten minutes later, there was a knock at the door. And there's this bloke who was probably in his 30s or something with an armful of... Solar, <laughs> solar lights. lights. <laughs> and he says, are these yours, pet? And I said, oh, yes, I think so. And he saw them, what he did, and he followed them down. And he said, I know every one of these. And, you know, you 
catch you doing anything like that, I'll be round to your parents. See, that's the northeast for you, exactly. And that, that's what I love about the northeast. My brother um, was a hard man. And when he went on holiday, he didn't used to bother with burglar alarms. Mm. He would just put a photograph of himself in the window. Yeah. And that is a true story. Because yeah. they all knew him. Yeah. And one day, my dad had his little nifty 50, his little scooter nicked from the yeah. shed that he used to use to go to work at the, the rolling mills. And Paul went up to the local pub on the estate and put a call out, which would have been, I swear to God, yes. I'll twat you sideways if you <laughs> don't come back with me father's bike. Yes. And within 24 hours, some little bloke is running down the, the snicket with my dad's bike, apologising yeah. profusely to Paul. I didn't know it was your father. Sorry about that, Paul. <laughs> You know, when you were talking, though, about we'll find the lesbians, lesbians are everywhere. I, was, I remembered a holiday that me and Harriet had about four years ago. We went to Oregon to a tiny, tiny little town on the coast. And we went there, um, a million miles from anywhere, to meet with our friend Alice, who I'd known when she was a special prosecutor, sex crimes prosecutor in New York. She was a big deal. She wrote a brilliant book called Sex Crimes mm. um, in the 90s that I found, read, contacted her. She came over to speak at one of our conferences. And we've stayed very close friends. Anyway, she then moved to Oregon because there were all these serial rapists after killing her when they got out of prison. So mm. she wanted to be somewhere outside of New York, hustle and bustle. So me and Harriet rocks up. We're completely isolated from anywhere. Now, just a little backstory. Five or six years before then, I'd reviewed a book for The Guardian called The Butch Cookbook, which was like a parody of itself. It was written by these butch-identified US lesbians that thought that because butches can't be bothered to cook, here are some really easy recipes. So the femme doesn't have to do it all the time. (laughs) Anyway, I reviewed it and it was great fun. So fast forward, we're in Oregon. And I said to Alice, who are your friends? You know, she's heterosexual, she's um, about ten years older than me. Who do you hang out with here? Mm. And she said, well, do you know Lee Lynch? Oh, oh, and I, I said, do that. I know Lee Lynch? Oh. So she was one of those that had written right. the Butch Cup book. She was the biggest name in lesbian literature is stretching yes, it. Yes, it is, yes. Uh, back, in, yeah, yeah, back in the 70s and yeah. 80s. For a publisher called Nyad Press, yeah. Yeah. where they had all those crashing had wave metaphors. Of... Yeah. <laughs> and every single lesbian I knew read wall-to-wall Nyad Press books. Yeah. Some of them written by Lee Lynch. One that was an absolute genius of a book, beautifully written, um, about a butch lesbian in the bars in P-Town and mm. in New York and who'd come of age and realised she didn't have to be. You don't have to be butch or mm. femme called The Swashbuckler, uh-huh. which is one of the best, yeah. best lesbian books I've ever read. So I said, I've got to meet Lee. Anyway, yeah. her best butch buddy, Sue and her, used to go out for dinner uh, to eat clams at five o'clock every day in this particular restaurant. So we rocked up, just got on brilliantly, all had dinner together, went round to Sue's, met all the other butches, yeah. met the femmes as well, of course, <laughs> of to course. whom they were married. Yeah. And it was like you stepped into the past, but also here are these brilliant lesbians that are all in this town that we would never, I would never have imagined meeting these women. 
And I ended up interviewing them and writing a piece for the Sunday Times on the disappearing butch lesbians. <laughs> and you do, you find lesbians everywhere, don't you? Yeah. So what... So, Annie, you, you um, are... What age, remind me? Uh, 69. Okay. So what changes would you like to see for young lesbians? Because at the moment we're in a really grim situation, aren't we, with young women, where I think in some ways they have it worse than we did when we came out. Yes, it, yes, I, I, I would agree on, on that angle to it, Julie. I think, um, I think the pressures and, and the definition of what you're supposed to be like and what you're supposed to wear and how you're supposed to arrange, have your eyebrows arranged, and etc., uh, etc., et seem so um, so very specific, and and you know they're, they're clearly drawn lines, and if you don't follow them, if you don't do the right thing, uh, then there's a sort of hint that there's some sort of consequences as a result, and and I think. I think younger women are seeing consequences, and I, and I wish there was some way that we could we could open open things up again, or close some of the things down. Because I suppose you know the, the mm -hmm. misogyny that's driving it, yeah, um, isn't isn't going to go away. That that's just getting stronger. It and, really is, um, isn't it? And and some of the stuff that's come through, you know, we have all this wonderful technology at our fingertips, literally. And then there are these uh, these guys who spend all all the time on on these uh, websites or, or in in chat rooms, just egging each other on to think and plan the worst with regard to women, and um, it's just just dreadful. It, it seems to be worse than it has ever been, uh, and more clearly defined really than than I've ever been aware of before. I agree with you, and I think that what's come with that, though, mm. Kate and I talked a little bit about this on the way here, is how there's now a massive resurgence of feminism in response yeah. to that unbridled mm. misogyny. Yeah. And it may be that some women have come to it because they've recognised we might lose all our sex-based mm. rights, and they hadn't necessarily been mm. involved mm. in the rape crisis movement or things that we were um, back in the day. Yeah. But there is hope, isn't there, for a new generation of feminists or a resurgence Absolutely. of the movement... I think it's I I think there's so much hope as I see things beginning to change because of the work that's being done by feminists. It's this has change isn't falling from the sky. Um but all these uh all these recently arrived issues are being challenged. And um everybody who just fell in line madly because they didn't want to be targeted um, are all having to have a rethink now because women have challenged and women have stood their ground and said, no, you're not doing this, you're not taking this away from us. Um, because up until recent times, it seemed to me, and I still do feel like that, but I, I, I do see hope and I do see movement. Um, this, you know, I've been alive a long time, and this is the most misogynistic period I've lived through. I agree. Uh, same, same for me. Absolutely, without question. Yeah. You know, absolutely, no doubt about that whatsoever. And it's, I hate having to say that. 
Well, the young ones need to um, be up in their game now anyway. It's not like we haven't equipped them. No, exactly. <laughs> and on that note, I suppose I'd better go and get my train. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been lovely to talk to you both anyway. And with you. Lovely. Thank you. Really lovely to meet you. I hope you found that as moving and heartwarming as I did, spending time with these two incredible women and visibly seeing the love that they share, the daughters they've raised together and the bond and connection they have through feminism. It meant a lot to me to meet them and I'm glad that you've been able to have a little sense of their world.